This Red Centre podcast is brought to you by Storm, a brand new red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. You are listening to Red Centre, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking and cutting edge imaging. Hi and welcome to this week's Red Centre number 79, the last one for the year, coming to you from the tech penthouse here at uh, Operation FX Guide. My uh, co-host, Jason Wingrove, how are you, sir? I'm extremely well, thank you, Mike. How are you? I'm good. R- running uh, ragged at the end of the year. I bloody am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jason was uh, turning up at the uh, to record today and I was like, Jason, I can't, I can't talk to you just right now. He's <laughs> like, okay, Mike's having a tantrum. Mm, yep, back away. Step so. away from the mic. <laughs> that scene in Wayne's World, we undoes the I see torch. What did there. What's that? You know, when he undoes the torch in Wayne's World. He goes, he's got the flat diary. No, Wayne's I don't World. know. Okay. Superb show, film. Don't remember that one. Hey, um, we had a really good reaction to last week's uh, episode number seventy-eight. Yes. Yeah. Just to the uh, the chat, particularly the chat you had with Angus Bickerton, the uh, VFX soup on uh, Narnia, Dawn Treader thing. Everyone seemed to have a really good. Uh, reactions that nice really good frank conversation so yeah it was really what we're finding actually is that a lot of dops are really appreciating the show and because they listen they're happy because you know there's a i think there's a confidence thing if you uh feel comfortable that uh someone's going to treat the information correctly not edit you to stupid sound bites yeah you know you're willing to have the conversation um and that is the thing you know not to go for the sensationalist soundbite and i think his was a very uh you know balanced uh, opinion mm, yeah no look i appreciate it. and people obviously are really conscious that they know that uh, we're um we treat ndas and we know what to say what to mention what not to mention and uh, yeah yeah and that's been the thing with fx guide for the last decade which is knowing when to keep our mouth shut um <laughs> because quite frankly you know uh it's all great and good to gossip but um we'd like to uh, feel like we're contributing on the plus side of the ledger, not the minus side of the ledger. As we, as was the original concept of the whole show, to try and be um, signal oh, and not noise. Of the whole show? Oh, to be signal and noise, good one. Signal and not noise, or, we should, or we less. That as a tagline. T-shirts made. <laughs> Red Center. We should do be some, part of the signal, we should, not the noise. We, did, we should do some. We should do something, particularly for NAB, since we're all going again. That'd be great too. We should do some hat aura. Yes, I'll work Jason, on it. I, th- I threatened to do it last tomorrow. time. Yes, I'll well, go right ahead. I shall do it. Just we have a great show for you this week. Um, obviously, it's going to be slightly more casual, as you can tell yourself from the intro, as we uh, try and deal with this uh, Christmas period. We um, have been shooting like crazy, both Jason and I, and I uh, prior to that, just got back from Korea. You got back from New Zealand. Yeah, I got back from New Zealand, then I went off to meetings in Melbourne, and I'm shooting at the moment. I've got a night shoot tonight. I've been shooting for the last two days on... But we're going to be uh, in the Red Room. We're going to have the one and only Mark from uh, Off Hollywood, which is incredibly cool because yes. he, he's going to talk to us about Storm and he's also going to talk to us about Epic and he has, uh, you know, the first Epic outside Red. Indeed, which is obviously, I guess, the uh, the main news for today. Well, that and we're gonna, uh, we've been promising to have a discussion over the uh, D7000 and thanks to Frank in Germany, we've done some testing on that. And uh, some comparative testing with work you've done with both the 5D and the F3. 5D and F3, and which I can then compare to similar tests that Frank shot for us uh, on the D7000. Which is, uh, which is interesting because obviously uh, one of the major issues, as we've talked about with, the D, with anything from Nikon so far, is they really have been completely missing, um, missing the game 
in terms of their codex and uh, particularly rolling shutter. And that's kept a lot of people away from, from Nikon for a while. But uh, as we'll cover with these tests, I think, uh, I think that we may be uh, seeing a complete change of form. Now, before we get to the news, let's just chat because, quite frankly, I haven't seen you in a while. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you did your first... SLR shoot where the client actually requested it, is that right? I think it's pretty much the first one. A lot of the times agencies say, hey, this is cool, let's try this. And then we either sort of talk them into or out of it, depending on if we think it's the right thing for the job. But yeah, this was the first one where the client actually said, oh yeah, we shoot all our clients. Not the agency, the client client? The client client. Wow. Said that this is all our, because this is like a multinational and a few of their ads... Uh, they've shot overseas, uh, their overseas officers have shot spots on 5D, so it's becoming a bit of a norm. So they've suggested can I, can it. Can I ask if it's a food or a car or a fashion? Or it a is a services. Services? Uh, okay. Yeah, automotive services. So it's not, uh, it's not something that we had a lot of post on it? No, no, very little. There's a little couple of little bits of post that just... Um, no, um, not green screen or... No, not green screen, just tracking something in, okay. putting something into, uh, dropping images into monitors, laptop monitors, and uh, placing a little uh, mark on a car, a little okay. defect on a car. So, yeah, it's pretty simple sort of stuff, but everyone seems to be happy with doing the post. Nothing tricky. So we sort of didn't worry about it from that point of view. Um, but, uh, oh, man, I mean, I, it is really, really this double-edged sword that we've talked about. You know, the imagery is just looking fantastic. I'm really loving it. It still looks you know, for all its pain, it's still looking, you know, it still is that VistaVision sensor and it still looks really gorgeous. Even on, you know, you don't have to have super wide open lenses to be able to get that nice imagery. Even just shooting on zooms at 2.8 or even on Zeiss Primes at 2.8, it still looks more, you know, almost has a three-dimensional feel to it. It's really, really We, we were shooting our interviews in, um, in Korea on the 5D. The only problem I had is in one of the occasions, um, we were shooting low light and security came to bust us. And so we were like rolling really quickly. Yeah. And I was monitoring two cameras at once. John was interviewing someone. Yes, because you didn't have any real helpers with you. It was just no, because it was a, you know it was a small conference. Like yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. And the talent decided to take a step back. And of course, I was over ah. on the B camera. And when I went to A, I was like, "Hang on, that's looking like oh yeah. god, we've got such a shallow depth of field." Yeah. The lenses were great because we could shoot at you know one mm. four one two, which I didn't want to, but we had low light and it was the only chance. Things about to get on a plane. It's one of those. Better to get it than not get it kind of situations. Yeah. But I must say that, yeah, I don't know. It's We haven't been completely chasing the total like 1. T1.4, like in crazy depth of field porn. We've just been, you know, just going for nice natural looking depth. But even still, it dil- there is still, I don't know what it is, there is still a definite nice. difference in, in having that chip size. The moment something more practical comes, I'm talking to you, Red. <laughs> <laughs> the moment something more practical comes with a full frame sensor, I am there. I am there. It's just, it's just such a gorgeous look, and just it makes, it makes every shot just so much simpler and easier to to get to make look nice. It's funny, but isn't there it? is it's an not like you go. I don't need something else because of this. It's almost the exact opposite. You go because of this. I now know I need something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, um, p- mainly because of the a lot of the pain we've been having isn't sort of ro- rolling shutter oh, or wait, wait, sound. Let me guess. Let me guess. Monitoring on set. Excellent. You named it. Oh because, my God. But obviously because we've got um, Video Village, you know, which is just incredibly – it's a world of hurt. We've got um, – uh, so we've got uh, my small HD monitor on the camera and then the small HD splitter 
to split the HDMI because obviously as soon as you plug anything HDMI into and as soon as you want to send a signal to Video Village you completely lose the LCD on the back of the camera so there's no point even packing a Z finder because you can't use it if you want to send an image to Video Village because as we all know if the client doesn't see it if they can't see it on uh, the monitor it doesn't exist it was never shot it physically uh, does not exist well there's got to have something to look at between turning the page of the newspaper and (laughs) updating their Facebook they're, um, so uh, HDMI is just a very twitchy thing. And it's just having, just going to order a few more cables and things, I'm sort of digging a little bit deeper on HDMI and sort of finding out what some of the issues are. Because well, a lot of the times, if you're plugging and unplugging, yeah, if you're plugging and unplugging a lot of stuff, stuff can just suddenly start to get a bit twitchy. Because yeah. HDMI was never designed to plug and play. It's yeah. a way to connect your telly at home to your yeah. U-Butte. DVD player. It's, it's not a way to yeah. why. And it's getting more and more complicated as it goes. The latest sort of iterations or versions of um, HDMI now almost have an, e- have an Ethernet wire coming in there. You can order your cables now with or without Ethernet. So literally if you've got some sort of TiVo or, or some sort of set-top boxes that work with the in- internet and connect to internet to your TV, there's now sort of implementing uh, Ethernet or internet connectivity through HDMI. So it's getting more and more complicated. So we had actually had cameras that would literally uh, would cut after a couple of seconds. You would roll and then it would stop. We just, we're all just standing around just going, what the hell is going on? Only after you sort of unplug everything and power down everything and power it back up again does it then start to work. Well, literally, we were freaking out like the camera was rolling and then it, or it wouldn't roll at all. We're just trying to work out what the hell was going on. So the idea really is that this is – I know it's really, really hard on set to treat anything as, as a cold swap and be able to t- turn everything off and turn everything on before you plug it in. But HDMI is really – really is a system like that really should be – not unplugging everything, but at least turn the cameras and monitors, turn everything off, plug up the way you want to plug up, and then turn everything on. So it's, yeah, it's a really, really painful uh, way to go. And also you can damage stuff. I have, I know I have damaged uh, or sent back a monitor that was dead or I've either killed a Blackmagic HDMI uh, intensity card or I've killed a monitor or I killed both. I think I had to swap both over. Um, just from hot swapping and not just pulling it out every five seconds, literally just, you know, oh, I'll just move that cable from here to here, unplug it once and plug it back in. All of a sudden, nothing works. And then, you know, you've got two warranty claims on your hands. So it's, uh, it is, luckily, nothing's blown up on set because literally the amount of times you unplug and plug stuff up and, oh, this cable, oh, I've got to reroute this cable around this rod, unplug it, plug it in again. It's, completely pain in the ass and it's quite twitchy you know you just bump a cable and they lose signal off and then when they lose signal everything sort of has to go hang on something's changed let me think about it oh okay that's the signal okay here you go here's your image it's just anyway okay and while we're on it and i'm going to rat hole alert here i have a, a rant on overpriced hdmi cable oh where where do i start okay so here's the thing right and and obviously Listeners to this podcast are inherently bright, intelligent, perceptive, good-looking. Let's face it. However, individuals. But but let me just uh, for those the the odd chance you're in a room with somebody that's also listening to this podcast who has the temptation to buy a two hundred and fifty dollar monster HDMI cable. Let me just explain a couple of fundamental things to you now. By the way, I have recommended HDMI cables on this show that were seven dollars because they were well made. And they were good short length. And yep. I don't have any problem with that. But, but I'm not kidding you. People sell 
HDMI cables for $250. Uh, they're called Monster Cables. It's a four-foot HDMI cable. Yep. You could hook up your TV with 14-carat gold chain for less than you could for hooking it up with this HDMI cable. Now, the HDMI cable... <laughs> per foot, that's is, how much you can buy. Per foot, you yes, buy ca- gold ca- from 14 carat jewelry. gold chain for less per foot. Okay, and an HDMI cable is sending a digital signal. Now, now people, back in the day when we had turntables, and I, I remember these days well, there was a school that said if you wanted to get a really good sound, you'd have to improve your cable because it was an analog cable. And so you got gold plated ones and ones Absolutely. with shielding on it because and this is where monster got their foot in the ground this is where but they you know dug what? their hole in if the it's earth. a digital cable it has zeros and ones it either gets a signal or it doesn't it doesn't get a partial signal there is no concept of a monster cable having error detection and error correction in the cable, <laughs> right? So it either works or it doesn't. There is absolutely mathematically no frigging difference between a $10 and $250 cable other than the fact that Best Buy would have to sell 14 more or 14 times as many bloody, um, you know, $10 cables to make the same yeah. kind of profit. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you are buying it because it has on the packet that it's got gold-plated connectors and it's shielded from... EM, FM radiation, and it's gas injected, then all I can say to you is for the love of anything, stop, buy the $7 one, and give the remaining $243 to charity. And I swear to God, your life will be better. I should set up, we should set up a charity. There is just no benefit, none, zip, not, not a single iota, not, yeah. not one mathematical difference between a working $7 cable and a $250 monster cable. I, Nothing. Like, not buy, even like a hint of anything. Yeah. Sorry. I buy my cables from Woolworths. I go to the supermarket, like $20, $19. You know, I just... I, you know, you use them all the time, from PlayStation and, and to a plasma. It's fatter, like, giving the impression that there's more bits going <laughs> yeah, down it, right? Because right. it's a all wider cable. All those metal ends. Oh, yeah. Like, it makes no all difference. All outer braiding. All that freaking outer braiding does is just make it a freaking pain in the ass to try and coil the cable up. Bend the bugger. Yeah, I tell you, it's a pain in the ass. So, um... Yeah, HDMI. And I'd like to thank Jeff Huser for my technical specs on, because he and I, he, I got from him the rant of cables. Yeah, it's quite disgusting. It's a real jip. You know, it is really kind of, it's quite, it's quite, quite an absolute con. And I don't quite know how Monster Cable can sleep at night because the amount of pseudoscience bullshit that they put on their site, not just Monster Cable, I'm going to say, to all of those kind of um, esoteric oh, I have no, tr- uh, I have no doubt file. that it is, in fact, a gas-injected cable. I don't think they're lying on the packaging. No. It's just the implication is that that would that somehow that would be benefit better. you. Absolutely. I'm sure they do all the technical stuff they need to. It's just not necessary. It's just, you know... Oh, it looks much better. Yeah. Anyway, so the sooner we can, you know, move on from HDMI. HDMI has its place, but and it's w- w- one thing. It's really great is that when you're playing back from the um, camera, that uh, audio and video, everything, everything goes back to. So if I'm playing back a take from the from the camera, audio comes through to Video Village, and the playback's there, and they can see the dialogue and everything. It's not a pain. They don't have to listen back through. Comtex or anything it comes straight through the monitor. It's all that that bit is easier, but the, it doesn't really make up for the rest of the pain. So be careful, people. Um, shop wisely and try and um, power things down when you unplug and plug things up, because you may end up killing a camera or a monitor or something. And again, the sooner we can move on from all that and go to SDI, which is so set friendly. You know, BNC is just so. You know, you yank on a BNC cable and you're going to just, you know, stuff the cable. 
or it'll or nothing will happen. But if you yank on a, a um, HDMI cable, you're going to just completely screw your camera or or something else, or pull the you know. It's anyway. It's um, <sighs> counting to ten. Okay, so yeah, that was that. But you know, again, the imagery is just fantastic. I'm just loving. I still. Can, can I change gear and say, yeah, well, you've been gear. off shooting SLRs. I've been off shooting film. Yes, I know, I know you have. I was amazed to hear you've been uh, uh, shooting a, uh, helping shoot a little short. Yeah, we've been shooting um, something that'll be in part of uh, FX PhD in the coming term with the one and only Nash Edgerton. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, actually, you visited us on set when we were. Yeah, I was sort some, of staggered to walk up and see a, really good stuff. a Panavision Platinum and 435s and 235s on set. Mm. Shooting um, four perf and three perf. Yeah, for a sh- for a short, for uh, you know. And we'd love to discuss that in great detail, but this isn't actually the topic of Red Center. It's all about no, cinematography, no, not old school right film. <laughs> but it was really nice. Load. Well, that's what I said. Every time you see a Panavision camera, or if there's a Panavision camera on set, or if you're using it, take a few photos of you hanging around with the camera. Classic ones of you know. I took a photo of putting me. your hand on the mag. No, no, I did that. Pointing. Well, better than that, I got to pick up the camera. You keep talking, and I'll because you never you. know when that's going to be your last film job. Yeah, so, um, because that's what you do. Yeah. I mean, obviously for uh, not charity spots, but, you know, if you're sort of doing – it's almost easier to actually shoot on film for a, sh- for a short like that than to, really? you know, get it – well, I mean, there's going to be a lot more of those cameras on the shelf ready to rent than – or ready to, ready to be loaned rather than, uh, say, you know, forget trying to get an Alexa. It's me holding a Panavision Millennium. Excellent. You're holding it the wrong way around. What do you mean I'm holding it the wrong no. way around? I'm holding the. What do you mean I'm holding it the wrong way around? I'm joking. This is very good. That's exactly the photo you need to take. I know. I know how to hold a camera. I'm, I'm joking. Bastard. Um, uh, yeah, obviously it's going to be a lot of. You can, it's very hard to get crappy uh, video split. Sorry, crappy <laughs> video split. Yeah, won't miss those days. Um, but yeah, it's obviously very easy, much easier to get for for a short. It's easier to get you know a good deal on film. It's easier to get you know a good deal on processing and telecine and all that stuff because well, that, it's but sort that of, presumes you kind of want to really, do processing. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Like, well, I mean, it's still obviously an incredibly worthy, while you know, worthy acquisition method. Still, okay. still incredibly amazing. But it's probably you. Probably there's probably more bargains and de- a lot easier to be able to get a uh, borrow someone's um, you know borrow a millennium someone's borrow, someone's, <laughs> borrow someone's millennium, someone's millennium uh, a couple out the back than than trying to get an Alexa because they are literally you know as we've said before they they are Reds and Alexas are are working you know almost every day so yeah anyway so that was good so that, obviously that yes that's for upcoming uh, FX FX uh, PhD I'm going to give you my picture for the show notes of me holding my millennium I think well, you it wasn't my millennium it was Nash's millennium okay excellent Mike proudly holds camera dot <laughs> JPEG um, we said it was going to be a bit more casual well you know it's the end of the year um, but we have got some good stuff coming up so stay with us and um, actually I have heard in past that our rat holes well, if they're on topic, which I think they normally are, are actually quite quite enjoyed by our audience, listeners. Um, so, because they're still sort of on on topic, but kind of on topic. On that topic. And now, sort of. anyway, the Red Center News. Right. Okay. So, obviously, as we will touch on when we cross to uh, Mark, is uh, Epic M double has shipped. I'm going to say it has ship because that's the singular of something shipping. <laughs> I think because at the moment there's just the one out there. Uh, right, you got to ship the first one to ship the second one. Yep. Waiting for that second one. Oh, okay. Come on. No, it's excellent. We've got one out there. 
uh, and it looks sensational. It's good to see it actually in the wild being used. Uh, Mike's been out there shooting, as he'll talk about. Um, lots of pictures uh, on Red User and on in the show notes of uh, various setups. Uh, just really nice to see it in the flesh and to see the machine versions looking very, very nice. Um, Red Mote's functioning. Everything's working. Uh, he can Apparently, he can shoot uh, all the frame rates, all the resolutions, uh, obviously, there's limitations we talked about last last show, but uh, everything all seems to be running fine. It's not like he's got some kind of crazy balsa wood uh, fake version with a huge uh, Mac 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 Pro on a on a trolley behind him. I, I, look, we, in the interview coming up later, and I'll, I will discuss this. Um, we didn't get into a bitsy thing about what individual features worked or didn't work, because quite simply, you know, the software updates are going to make that an irrelevant conversation, even by the time this goes to air. Yeah. What we did discuss is, and you'll hear this in about uh, a bit, is, you know, what was it like to shoot with? Uh, what does he think about the need to get new accessories? Um, how does he feel about the weight, the handling? And, of course, uh, looking forward to shooting on stereo because uh, those guys have done a lot of stereo workflow. The other thing we discussed is is Storm. Um, because I think the thing about Off Hollywood, as, as we'll get to in the interview, is there are brilliant merge between onset and post between mm. production and post it's the responsible adult partner or for a filmmaker that you would go to these guys and and i think that's a really really hot model for um, stuff moving forward and so even if they hadn't have an epic and even if they weren't uh, on alpha with storm i'd have loved to have talked to them because they're a really good company yeah, no, as you, you're right, they sort of know it from, from the lens right through to the screen. So, But they're not the only ones that are um, epicking. <laughs> Who else is epicking? Oh, okay, yes. Mr. Uh, Scott. Mr. Scott, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Ridley Scott Great is Scott. is shooting uh, Alien prequel. Actually, actually, if you look on IMDb, and I'm a little bit IMDb gun-shy after <laughs> the last couple of, couple of eps, but it's actually listed as two prequels. It's listed uh, as the Smurf movie on IMDb. <laughs> Blue Harvest 3D. Um, yeah, Alien Prequel 1 and Alien Prequel 2. So I'm not sure if they're shooting two films at once, but we will, we will <laughs> well, find that out. they were confused by the stereo, so they're <laughs> them Alien Film 1 and Alien Film Spookily similar. Right. <laughs> yeah. These two films are like... That yeah. second film was Just wow, a such one. a rip-off. Um, yeah, shooting with uh, Stereo Epic on the Element Technica Atom Rig, which I haven't, there is not a lot much out there about the Atom Rig. That's a fairly new setup. Uh, shooting with Darius Wolski, who uh, has just wrapped Pirates 4, shooting Red, Red 1, and as well as having shot all of the other Pirates of the Caribbean films and Alice in Wonderland, Dark City, Sweeney Todd, and being obviously incredibly inc- amazing and we're not worthy. Yeah, I'm absolutely. I mean, uh, Ridley is an incredibly professional and prolific filmmaker. He hasn't mm. seemed to um, slow down at all. Have you seen his new one, uh, the Freight Train one, the Unstoppable? No. So that's, uh, that looks interesting because he's teamed up with, uh, I think it's the right Ridley I've got there. Uh, maybe it's Tony Scott. No, it's a Tony. Yeah. I think that might be a Tony job. Yeah, it's Tony Scott. Actually, Ian is throwing things across. The, I'm ducking to miss <laughs> the books that are being thrown from the other side of the room that I've confused my Scots. Um, so there's that, of course. Uh, Pirates is wrapped, I believe, on um, principal yep. photography. Yep, they are wrapped, and obviously they're in post for a while. Spider-Man's shooting with about, what, 15 or 16 epics we hear on the grapevine. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, in... Um, oh, yeah, and I heard some other gossip as well about the... We're going to try and confirm uh, on what's going on in New Zealand with The Hobbit. I can't say until I've confirmed it. Oh. Yeah, but I'll get that for next week. Dude. Yeah. Um, 
man. Okay, cool. <laughs> but yeah, so that's uh, that's all uh, powering ahead. So that's because uh, you know you joked about there being one epic in the wild, but I mean, there's at least a you know somewhere between a dozen and twenty cameras on Spider Man. So uh, sure. No, I'm. I mean, like an that. epic M that is paid for, that is shipped so to third parties. It's not being sort of supplied by Red to but a I don't studio think anything for free. Invalid about shooting Spider Man. It's not like it's a cheat. That's a real project. No, no, yeah, no, sure, but that would be the cameras would all be supplied by Red for free, and there why would, would be... they be provided for free? Well, why not? Because it's a, <laughs> because it's an excellent. You think Spider-Man I'm, can't afford to buy a camera? Well, I'm, no, I'm just presuming that um, that it's an excellent. Uh, I think that's a false it's assumption. An okay. I think that. Uh, right. you I think, think you that think the, that the studios are paying their way, and that. Um, yeah, I think that I, I have nothing to believe that Spider-Man, which is a well-funded, well-run production, isn't paying for their cameras. Okay, I don't, just, I don't want to be sued by the okay. Spider-Man production company. I think All right, it's a completely valid thing to say. Um, there may well be. Okay, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the cameras are being chosen because they're all free. I'm just, Absolutely not. No, in fact, in fact, the exact no, opposite. Just right? Because they could have any bloody cameras they wanted. No, I'm just presuming that Red would be supplying the cameras for free because it's an excellent, you know, onset learning thing for them, and it's a fantastic. Obviously, it's a marketing edge, and it's terrific to get these cameras in, in there, in in the hands of, uh, you know, to, to, it's going to really help um, solidify. Not that it didn't need much solidifying, but it's really going to help solidify yeah, Epic's I guess I've position. Just looked at it from a different point of view. I just think that, particularly you know, for 3D. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I think, from my point of view, Epic was a camera choice they could make. They could pick Epic. They could have picked whatever you like, really, Alexas or F-35s or anything they wanted. They tested, did their homework, decided to shoot Epic. I don't think I don't think there's any way that you would... It was like a product placement. You know what I mean? Like, to imply oh, no. they didn't play is no, like no, to I'm say not that that would influence their decision. I just, yeah, absolutely. Look, if, I, I would, no, I'm just suggesting that... Um you're suggesting make, if you were running Red, if I, you'd have given them the camera. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, well, have them. Thing. You want to okay. shoot Spider-Man. You want to shoot Alien. <laughs> you want to shoot, you know, whatever. I think Mr. Go Jackson and, and uh, the Spider-Man team and the Scott team would all... Yeah, I'm not suggesting there's any bias or that's going to sway any tests at all. Everyone, everybody, we've, we've spoken to numerous people who have done independent tests across a lot of stuff. And, uh, have, have, you know, the Red has, has come, and particularly the... Um, Epic has, has come out shining not because it's been supplied or free or kickbacks or anything. Literally, this is the first and foremost. And obviously, look, if you're going to shoot 3D, and if you were offered camera. Epics, what you would jump at the chance. Smaller. Yeah. Now, look, I'm presuming just that they're tattoos and mm-hmm. they've been made, that they've been made to put onto productions. Um, and that there's, you know, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a two-way street that, you know, Red's going to learn just as much from putting these on the show as the, the benefit to the show itself. So, you know. Just my two cents. <laughs> okay. But it's good to know if you ever get a job at the marketing department of Red that I could hit you up with some free cameras for my next um, me, multi-billion dollar film. Yeah. Chances of me getting a job for, at marketing at Red. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed in the door. Ted, if, uh, <laughs> if you need an offsider, Jason's number is ideally, 555. Ideally, I would love to. Actually, <laughs> when we go there before NAB, I'd, I'd love to at least uh, come visit. Okay. Um. If there's not some sort of picture at the front door saying, do not let this guy in. <laughs> do not let Wim Grove in. No, I don't think that's the case this at all. Man. A lot of people at Red listen to this podcast and, and uh, we uh, welcome them. No, we love you. Um, so, some clarification on the SSD Red Station stuff? 
Yeah, look, I thought it was uh, worth 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 talking about because it's been. I know, obviously, a lot of people are crystal clear on this, and I, but I know there's a few people that are a little bit sort of grey on it. So I've just done a bit of research and also have also chat to uh, Jason Diamonds, cleared up a few things for me, and also there is some now some. Um, support documents on red site about the whole ssds and the red station so uh so each each obviously we're talking about the uh the essentially the red media uh readers and Mm -hmm. and the uh base sort of powering station to suit it so each of the units uh can be bus powered if it's on firewire 800 and but each unit obviously comes with a power supply and you're going to need that power supply if you're running off eSATA or usb it won't bus power through those two methods you don't need, obviously, the base station to run uh, any of them at all, but it, it's just convenience if you're going to have multiple readers, you can power three of them from one um, base station. Obviously, you can have multiple base multiple base stations. Uh, so the Red Mag 1.8, there's been at least a confusion in my head about the Red Mag 1.8, Red Mag 2.5-inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Red 1.8 station is obviously the proprietary interface one. That is directly for reading the 1.8 SSDs from the camera, so that's the, obviously the two the two main media uh, systems the two main media um, drives for uh, on Epic and obviously now we've seen the the um, red uh, the SSD module uh, upgrade for the red one. Uh, the Red Mag two point five station is for slotting in standard off the shelf two point five inch eSATA notebook drives like S- or obviously SSD two point five eSATA drives. Uh, and that's obviously for to put in your backup media as an option to put in your backup media. So you can obviously have um, blank drives going in there, and then using your laptop as a throughput um, backup from the uh, 1.8 inch SSDs to 2.5 inch um, uh, floppy drives. Uh, <laughs> floppy drives. <laughs> floppy drives. Where that come from? Come from. Good lord, man. Jesus. Uh, there is a list of you not Jesus, but yes. <laughs> there is a list of uh, Red's approved uh, hard drives for that 2.5 inch uh, reader, but uh, I'm, I'm presuming that others will work uh, just as well. Uh, now there is a Red station uh, installation guide on Red support page at red.com/support, and then you can download a whole big long PDF about uh, how this all works together. It sounds really uh, weird that we need to have a little bit of a rat hole and and a whole sort of documents on how to make this all work but it is a little bit confusing because i kept wondering okay what are the 2.5 inch ssds what camera are they built for are they larger media are they right. larger storage so literally just to it be clear, is clear the base station the compact flash station the 1.8 station and the 2.5 inch station are all 250 dollars us from the store yeah and they all look very similar so it is easy to be confused Yes. But what you're saying to me is I could pretty much survive with a red station, red mag, if all I was dealing with is the 1.8 stuff. Exactly. If you were just dealing with 1.8. Or even a base station. Exactly. No base station. You literally just get the 1.8. And if you're going off FireWire 800, then you don't even need to power, power it up. But we don't want to run off FireWire 800 because it's pretty slow. So we're right. going to probably run off uh, a base station, maybe with some power. With power supply things, and going to and eSATA. Yeah. But then say if you're on a laptop, right, then what do you – you need to have an eSATA adapter in your well, Express soon, slot? my friend, we're going to want to have USB 3, but that's a whole different story. Yeah. Yeah, Apple are really dragging the chain there on that one. No doubt soon. I, I had, do hear rumors of new MacBook Pros uh, earlier in the year, but hey, again – 
that's, you know, we don't know about that till it comes. I mean, it's my latest rant is USB 3 because an eSATA drive is 3 gigabits per second. Mm. FireWire 800 is 800 gigabits per second. If we had Fire, if USB 3, we'd be at 5 gigabits per second. So that's about 5 or 6 times faster than a FireWire 800. But you're always going to be at the mercy of the slowest part of the chain, right? So if you've, you might have this, you know, rocket fast uh, SSD but uh, it's only going to bump down as slow as, pos- as, as, as slow as the um, 2.5-inch hard drive that you are copying to or whatever your copying media is, right? Well, I want to pass it from the USB to a USB 3 drive because like, you can buy right now off the shelf a USB 3 drive. That's no problem. Yeah. I yeah. just want it to pass through. And so obviously I need an architectural change to do that. But I mm. can get a 2 terabyte 7200 RPM Really nice, you know. I mean, they're very new, obviously. They're not yeah. very cheap, but um, USB 3 drive. Yeah, but my point being that you only, can only copy it off as fast as the drive you're copying to can copy it on. <coughs> yes, obviously, if you had a RAID, though, you'd have multiple spindles. True, true. And that would help a lot. And while we're on that So I wonder, can you then, if you had two of the... Well, you wouldn't probably go that way, I suppose, would you? a really cool device. Sorry. If you had the two Red Mag 2.5-inch drives going to two, um, they should have, be able to let you to rate it. I'll tell you another really cool thing mm. brought to me by my uh, business partner, Mr. Dave Edgar, um, a man with the four-way hips when it comes to this kind of technology. It's the um, Ultra Studio Pro. So I'm dropping this on Jason hasn't heard about this, but the um, this is a black magic. Uh, thing which looks really really cool, right? I mean, it's just like awesome. Oh, yeah. We saw that at NEV, yeah, but it is freaking USB three. Yeah, but you can connect S, uh, SDI to the back of it, so you can connect up full ten bit SDI to the back of it and output to a USB three drive. And I mean, that's freaking yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's sensational. It's really nice. Take in two channels of you know, so you've got basically four 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 SDI yep. coming in. To, to USB 3. So I when mean, Mac adopt USB rocks. 3, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Well, people will now email us and say they're not going to adopt USB 3. They're going to go straight to the fiber optic Or they're going option. to say, oh, we've got this... Uh, I presume people are going to start making USB 3 PCI cards for Mac Pro, maybe. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know. Hmm. So anyway, uh, yes, actually we're coming a lot of that stuff in next terms background fundamentals yeah it's uh, going to be PhD. an interesting year we're doing stuff on workflow there you go there's another leak for the fx phd members that listen to this podcast excellent um okay so let's move on um do we have any more news or stuff or should we go straight to our red room i think we should go to the red room actually uh can't wait to hear mark peterson from off hollywood talking about uh not just the receipt of his new uh, machined epic but also uh, his dealings with storm as well Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us. We so appreciate it. Hey, Mike, it's great to be here. So now we're um, very keen to talk to you about your impressions of Storm, but I'd be remiss if I didn't also sort of mention that you may have got a new toy to play with recently. (laughs) Yeah, we're sort of on day day three of the machined M epic camera. That's kind of uh, taken over our world for the moment. But we we can talk about Storm first. Do you want to talk about both? Let's talk about Storm first because uh, we really want to do that and then um, I'll come and discuss uh, Epic uh, after that. And so obviously um, Storm has been in beta for a little while. Uh, Before that, it was kind of in an alpha, uh, which I know both you and I were on. So I guess uh, for those people that haven't downloaded the free beta yet, um, 
just answer me this uh, primary question, which is, you know, if I've already got something for free from Red, why would I be interested in Storm? Well, I mean, my, I guess my an- my answer is, you know, there are different tools, and the different tools have different roadmaps. Um, I think you have to look at all the tools that are out there, especially the new tools that are emerging, and see what they have to offer. I mean, right off the bat, there's a couple of features in Storm that are really exciting right off the bat, even in the beta stage. Everyone seems to really respond to the real-time histograms and the real-time waveforms. Um, I just love the fact that I can white balance shots while I'm monitoring on the red rocket and not and see what I'm doing in the viewer. So my viewer is always active while my red rocket output is active as well, which is not the case in, in Red Cine X. No, I was going to say that that is a bit of a thing and I, I find as well that uh, you're kind of on one or the other uh, in Red Cine X, whereas, of course, um, uh, this isn't like that. And, of course, there are, I know there are a host of other things. I mean, the very fact is that when you get a product for free, you can't really be bitching and moaning about support, but obviously at some point... You know, a company like the Foundry is designed for doing support and uh, backing up productions, and and this is their business. Um, I'm wondering, did you or do you expect to use the tagging features of um, Storm? Yeah, I think that you know this is something that I was sort of banging my uh, my spoon on my high chair very loudly in all of my discussions with the Foundry and how important I think that tagging is going to become in the future, and. Um, you know, the problem with getting getting people excited about metadata and tagging is a little bit of a chicken and egg thing because people don't really get excited about it until they see some tool or solution that uses that tagging to do something that saves time and money or makes something more efficient. So it's kind of like I'm sure there are a lot of people reacting now to who are playing with Storm and seeing the tagging features, which I think are excellent. Um, and saying, well, this is really great. You know, it's really easy to tag, you know, to a frame or tag to a whole shot or tag a bunch of shots, but so what? Like, what do I do with those tags? And I, and I think that's a much a bigger picture thing. I mean, of course, right now it's, it's a powerful tool, the way for you to search for shots and search for media. But I think in the future, you're going to see tags being used by other tools to do auto assemblies to do all kinds of things. Yeah, I guess that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you because we're not as interested, of course, in just the uh, shoot and play muck around market as we are the sort of what I'd call the workflow or or sort of professional pipeline. And it's in that context when you're dealing with a large quantity of material that tagging moves from being fun to being really um, a leverage for getting your work done, doesn't it? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of... I try to evangelize all this tagging stuff and I always tell everyone, I said, you know, most tags wins, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's the future of even how we're going to monetize content. I mean, to some extent, it's how we monetize content already. And it's certainly how we search content on the internet and it's how we find things through social media. And, you know, I just think it, it's, you know, there are obvious metadata uses in VFX pipelines today that have been established in VFX pipelines for a long time. Um, but I, again, I think we're going to start to see tools that will do a lot of other things um, with metadata and with tagging. It's just, it's hard to get people excited about it until you show them those 
tools that use the data. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is we're sort of in the in the normal world so used to just uh, being able to search stuff, and Google, um, you know, is so great at being able to throw up stuff that we want that we start to get to a world where we imagine that everything's like that. But of course, once we get inside a picture, everything changes. I mean, your ability to type a um, a search command and actually have it understand what's in a picture is virtually non-existent. So it really does rely on the tagging. And so once you start building up um, these high-quality elements especially, uh, without that ability to tag, you're basically just going to have to go reshoot because you just won't be able to find anything. Exactly. And of course, the other, the other problem is with R3D files, they're terrific, but they're high resolution. And invariably, I'm sure you're the same as us, we end up doing stuff out to um, library systems and LTOs and everything else. And so you just don't have time to have somebody sitting there loading tapes to kind of find something. You actually have to have a system that works. And uh, I, th- I think that I think that the earlier you can do that, the better. And I, I guess that brings me to my next question, which is do you see Storm as an onset tool to assist while shooting? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think right now... Um, I would push it for onset use just because of the tagging and because of the scopes. I mean, I, I'm, I won't be shocked if you see the same types of scopes show up in Red Cine X. And, and again, Red Cine X has lots of great stereo features in just its you know, first version of stereoscopic tools that I don't have any of that in, in Storm right now. And, you know, I, I try to avoid this whole – I don't believe in sort of a Red Cine X versus – storm thing and if people are going to get into that thing they're, they're not really getting it you know red cine x is a tool made by the company that makes the camera so they're always going to test and implement new features before they're even released in the sdk so you're going to want to ride that train no matter what tool anybody makes you're going to want to be riding that train but you're going to want to test and play with every other tool out there i mean if you're if you're like me and you you want you want to be working with the best stuff and you want to see what's out there. And, and you know, you know, like I know, some of the IP that the Foundry has with respect to optical flow, with respect to retiming, with respect to a lot of things that other software solutions struggle with. So as far as sort of putting your chips on, you know, putting your chips down on a good bet, you know, if they're spending the time to get the foundation right with Storm now – they obviously can add lots and lots of things um, with their existing IP. Yeah, but I guess for me, there's three things. Firstly, Red makes no money from selling Red Cine, obviously, or Red Cine X. So, you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm really cool to have them provide those free tools. But obviously, we want the company to make the cameras and ship Epics and stuff and ship Scarlets. And if you've got another company that's working hard to produce tools, then that's great. Obviously, there isn't just one. There's a bunch, but uh, Foundry is a really good one. Second thing is the Foundry has that user interface experience and uh, getting the UI, um, you know, it can be a little thing. I think a, a good example of this is regional waveform monitoring, like just being able to drag a window out. Let's say you had a, a, a window or some highlighted area of the screen that's very um, bright and you just wanted to do a regionalized uh, waveform of that. I mean, that's just a brilliant thing to be able to do on the fly. Yep. Um, and then the third thing is, I think I've said, is that uh, obviously when you're building professional pipelines, it's really nice to have, you know, shipped tools that uh, you have a very uh, sort of solid support and, and uh, backup base behind because that's what they do. That's all they do. Um, a bunch of R&D guys and you know that, uh, that where you're at. Um, I guess for, for 
people beyond just red, though, I mean, we should just flag that there's every expectation with the roadmap that storm will extend out because I'm sure you're all the same as me. We, we, neither of you and I work for red. And, and as much as we love shooting with the red camera, we're quite often dealing with projects that have mixed media. There'll be mostly stuff coming off red, but there'll be some shots that somebody stuck off a 5D off the side of a car or there'll be, you know, extra bits and pieces. And I think moving forward... Um, this idea of being able to collate that through is also an important thing. We could hardly expect Red to be supporting, you know, 5Ds or whatever else it is moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're <clears throat> we're looking forward to being able to drop, you know, DPX and QuickTimes yeah. to those timelines for sure. I think the other thing that's that's interesting moving forward is that idea that Storm would be a front end into things like Nuke, especially on set, uh, because these days sort of uh, previs and just test comping and stuff is so key, especially in my work in, in effects work. Um, it seems like there's a really good bed here because there's nothing stopping them moving forward into... Um, I mean, already there are some nice plug-in type grading tools that uh, that have a very kind of foundry-esque feel to them. Have you have you played much with any of the creative grading? Yep, a little of, bit, a um, little bit, yep. What do, you, what do you like? What's that? What do you like? Is there anything in there that you really like that you've been playing with? Um, I, I don't think I could point out anything specific. I mean, you know, we're all kind of anxious for more secondaries um, and, sh- <laughs> and shapes, but but um, you know, it's it's certainly it's certainly got it's got. A, I think they've gone as far as they can go without adding shapes. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I, I definitely agree that uh, obviously more secondaries are are always key, and uh, and yet. Just having that kind of template-based stuff is one of the things that I find most useful because quite often I'm in the position where I sort of set something up and then a director just wants to see it like that from now on and just being able to throw stuff around really quickly. Not that you can't do that in other products, but it does seem to be a really good way to kind of drag and drop uh, templates around the place to just give first-pass looks on set. You know, we currently use, you know, Red Cine X for, for processing stereo dailies and we do some stuff in Clipster. Um, and some stuff in Scratch, but sort of just just to process stuff for editorial. Um, you know, I think the you know the early implementation that they have in Red Cine X is is quite good. I'm certainly looking forward to um, what Storm does, especially if they want to put some of those Ocula. You know, you know some of the IP that they have in Ocula would be really exciting to have in an onset tool. You know, to be able to sort of have that disparity map, you know, and yeah. there's a lot of stuff you could do with what they have. Yeah, even if all that that was was to check that you would be able to solve it in post because um, yep. <clears throat> it's sometimes hard on set when you're looking at a stereo to actually work out whether it will or won't um, come together okay. And I, I certainly myself feel like I haven't got to that confidence level I have with a lot of other things where I can just look at something and say, yep, that won't be a problem in, um, in post. Uh, when it comes to stereo. So some of the uh, offsets and stuff, it'd be great to know that you can easily bring them back into alignment or whatever if you've got a problem with a rig that maybe isn't as good as it should be. Yep. So look, uh, let me just shift gear and ask you about the Epic. Now, you've got that uh, one of the first people outside Red, if not the first people outside um, Red Head Office. Uh, I guess the the question everyone wants to know is how viable is it for you to shoot with it? Um, well, uh, <laughs> we haven't, we haven't hit a problem yet. I mean, you know, we, we, we got the camera on Saturday and FedEx was, you know, a, a torturing, you know, three or so hours late. Um, I had, you know, previously held a couple Epic prototypes. I'd kind of messed around with, 
a prototype with an early firmware build, you know, that Ted was sort of running around with. Um, but, you know, we, we got it and we were, we didn't, of course, there was no instruction manual and, you know, we fired it up and the, the menus are very, very intuitive and, and it, they did an extremely good job. It, it's, it's like, if you, know, if you can use a red one, you can use the Epic because if anything, it just felt easier. The menus were laid out in an, almost a, just an easier way and, and a more responsive way. And the fact that you can access things from the touchscreen or from the side handle or from the red moat, um, it, you know, we were, we were shooting in like, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, you know, and I, I imagine, you know, a third of that time we were just oohing and eyeing. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 it really might, you know, no matter what I say, there's no really way to, 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 to put words to it. It is just so tiny and so light. Like when I got the box, I picked up the FedEx box and I thought, oh my God, you know, Jared, because if you know Jared, of course, has a, is a pretty clever sense of humor. I thought that Jared just pulled a big one on me and, you know, FedExed me like a, an inflatable doll or something, you know, um, because it just felt too light and um, open it up and it was, you know, packed in a tiny little Pelican case. And you're kind of like, is this it? And you pull it out, and it, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, yeah, it, it is incredibly small, which of course is is really uh, valuable in so many applications. Did you say that you've got a working uh, remote or red remote? Yeah, red red remote. Yep. There are you know there are certain features that are not enabled and are about to be enabled, and I don't want to get you know. I don't want to get too far into to commenting on that stuff just out of respect to the engineers working on the stuff. Sure. But, but we went, you know, we went up yesterday uh, to Niagara Falls just to sort of beat on the camera, if you will, you know, and we shot, you know, slow shutter speeds. We shot slow motion. We shot, um, you know, with the red moat in the freezing snow, snow cold, you know, shot for about 10 hours without any issues whatsoever. So, it seems to me that right now, as Epic comes to market, there are two things that are going to be phenomenally useful. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of things you could go into, and there's a lot of details. And, of course, you and I like geeking out on, on those little details. Yep. But just in big, broad brushstrokes, it seems to me the two big ones are, firstly, just the fact that it's smaller accelerates and multiplies through the entire production. I mean, the rigs that you hold it are therefore smaller. The number of crew to mount and lug the rigs is uh, are less. The catering for the crew that lug the gear that was carrying the heavy camera are, are less. I mean, it just it's a multiplier effect right through your production. And then the second one for me, obviously, would be the HDRX and just the incredible dynamic range. Is that what's sort of occurring to you, just that those are, would be the, the two biggest punches right out of the gate? Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think the two obvious punches are the HDRX is just something that's incredible. Although it's funny that you you go get all excited about it and you go out there and you you have to work at finding the, the situation to use it. <laughs> and and I will tell you, and I, I'm sure it's a result of the I'm sure it's a result of having more resolution to downsample. But we shot stuff at extreme IOs just to just to mess around. And we shot a lot of stuff at even ISO 5000 and it looks – it doesn't look anything like – you know, it looks like 2000 or two, two to 3000 on an, on an MX Red 1. So, you know, I, you know I, I can't definitively say – I haven't done enough testing to really sure. peel it back. But 
you know, first reaction sort of right out of the gate, rubber hits the road, what's up? It's wow. It's just wow, you know. So we're, you know, we're going to go out tonight and shoot Times Square and HDRX and run around in the middle of the night and try to shoot this lunar eclipse if we can stay up, you know, stay awake long enough. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's extremely stable from the point of view that, you know, we've been pretty much trying to break it and haven't broke it yet. So it's only day three, of course. But <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think probably that ISO thing is uh, a multiplier, much like the weight and size, because once you reduce the lighting packages that you need to pull off a shot, you again reduce the crew, reduce the time it takes to set up right. and everything else. And obviously, you want to get really good quality of light, but there is just a thing about having to lug a lot of stuff to get a lot of light to light something up, especially if you start going off speed. Um, and I was incredibly impressed with the noise floor on the MX, just full stop. So yep. if that's translating really well uh, into the Epic, then that really is a huge, huge breakthrough. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think... I, I do, sorry, go on. I, I do think, Mike, you know, the thing that strikes me is that, of course, you know, I've had this two and a half, three days. And of course, I, I don't even want to look at my MX cameras anymore. And, and we're shooting, you know, amazing stuff with amazing people on the MX all the time. Um, but you could have the, you know, back to your sort of comment of everything shrinking. If you think of everything staying the same, you know, in terms of the size of the crew, it, or at least there are so, I should say, what I think you're going to see is people shooting with more cameras, more, because you can, you yeah. know, um, because there's so many times I can think of in the filmmaking process where it's like, oh, it would just be great if we could put, you know, four cameras on this scene. But if it if it's that much gear, people just go, it's going to slow me down too much, you know. But I mean, you could pull an Epic out of a, you know, out of a handbag and put it on a monopod, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's very true that a lot of feature films have moved towards multi-camera shooting for uh, basically performance reasons. And um, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, is obviously action-based that's multi-camera, but even uh, a lot of DOPs now are enjoying putting up multiple cameras for stuff that is principally dialogue. And, of course, gives editorial a lot of flexibility, gives the actors a bit more uh, ability to act in a continuous way. And uh, that just generates so much footage which of course brings us back to why products like storm and tagging are so good because it's you know it's one thing to to go many days on a on a larger production another thing to go many days with many cameras on a larger production i mean you really have to have your workflow together yeah and 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 you will be shooting more a lot more data so i mean you know the nice thing that even in the, the the build that we have on the epic is there's a lot of choices for compression and and so we're shooting at a five to one, a lot of our stuff at five to one. Um, so it's much larger than shooting, you know, 4K at, you know, Red Code 36 or 42. Can I just ask you something? This is, I don't want to get into a debate, but I mean, obviously there's a bit of stuff out there about, uh, you know, 5K and, and uh, it's a shame to shoot stuff at HD. And I understand that argument. I guess for me, most of the stuff we deal with is going to be finished at either 2K or HD. And so one of the huge advantages of shooting high resolution is you can crop in, reframe, uh, make decisions later and stuff. Uh, is it your, like, where are you guys at? Where are you personally at in terms of posting through higher than a 2k because i have no problem with shooting i mean we always shoot 4k for 2k finish 
Um, but are you thinking that you're going to be seeing a lot more post-workflow higher than 2K or, well, we, or not? Well, I can't tell you the, the, the truthful answer, but I can tell you that I'm going to evangelize it. I'm going to push... I want to push to finish people's films, even independent films, in 4K. And I'm going to try to help them do that because it's something I believe in. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen some really exciting tests from Red Ray. I think that's a real uh, platform that is going to sort of come out of nowhere and knock everybody's socks off. Um, and, I, and I, you know, again, I agree with you. 90% of what we're, what we're delivering um, – is in the 2K resolution or the HD resolution, but you know if if you're shooting raw and if you're shooting raw on a on a Red One or on an Epic, you know, I just beg to differ over the sort of exaggerated costs and time constraints that people are trying to portray um, for finishing in 4K and 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 finishing in a higher bit depth for that rate. You know, I'm I'm very much like 10 bit log is over. I understand that's what everyone does today, but we're past that. I mean, we're past that with our sensor technologies. We're past that with some of our displays. And it, it's kind of like if, you know, off Hollywood, which is a very small little company in New York City with, you know, less than 25 full-time employees, if we can finish in 4K at a 16-bit depth, why shouldn't we be doing that? I mean, I think that there is no doubt in my mind that that 90% rule is uh, what's happening at the moment. I think it will take something like Red Ray to give the leg up to being able to just project at higher resolutions. That'll uh, make it valid. Now, of course, the, I guess the principal argument from Red would be you want to insurance uh, or future-proof your work by you know covering now for what will be projected much higher resolution later but i mean if a, if a home screen is grown now to the size that they have which most people's uh you know flat screen televisions are, are enormous compared to what they were uh five or ten years ago um if you get something like red ray and, and i was so glad to see some more red ray news coming up on um on red.com then that could be the the kind of the key to unlocking, I guess, that higher resolution, especially for the independent film market, because quite frankly, you could, you know, have one of those at a, um, at a festival and easily project a, a lot of films in an afternoon at gorgeous resolution. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I can only assume, I don't know. I, I haven't actually paid attention to the, to the specs that they publish, but I, I'm assuming we're still in variable bit wavelet, or at least, I mean, at least we're in wavelet technology. I mean, assuming we're going to be able to get a 1080 out of the Red Ray player, even though we have a 4K image. I don't, I don't know. Do you know if they've said that or if that's... I don't know if they've changed that, but that's certainly, yeah, the idea was that uh, the Red Ray would have a newer version, a different version, I should say, of what an R3D file is. And that that's right. because, as you know, an R3D file, terrific file, and unlike some of the other capture formats, it's a file built for post-production. In other words, it's built for being able to color grade, built to be able to do stuff. Um, whereas, of course, uh, a signal that you get at home, you know, an HD signal, is a completely different type of signal. It's crap for regrading, but looks good if you just play it the way it is. And that's exactly what the codec on the Red Ray will be, a, a, a playback codec, not an archival or editing codec. Right. I just think, you know, I, I think, you know, we do a lot of DCP mastering here at Off Hollywood. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of features that, that DCP offers that I think are really exciting, you know, specifically 
to security. And I, and I think about the possibilities with Red Ray and it's like, it's almost like you could create revenue models because if, if imagine if, if every Red Ray player had, you know, has, ha, or has a, a unique ID, you know, like, like a, a cinema server. So mm-hmm. you're basically giving someone a key to play a file then, you know, you can, people can be subscribing to content channels, if you will, um, and be getting additional, additional content that they could be downloading. But if they're not paying for the subscription or paying for the key, if you will, they can't play it. Yeah, I mean, they have published that it's going to have 128-bit um, AES encryption um, and KDM support. So, you know exactly. There, I think there's a bunch of new media opportunities that uh, yeah. these things present themselves with. I think. I think um, one one thing they, I think that they should be thinking about, or people like me are thinking about, in terms of when the technology hits the streets and and as it starts to get some legs, um, is sort of that additional content model. You know, you think about when laser discs and and even DVDs and Blu-rays is. A lot of times you can get the content a number of different ways. So if you sort of have added value content or special content um, that is only on the Red Ray version of, you know, The Hobbit or whatever, Spider-Man or, or whatever, you know, it, it, I think that's an interesting angle to get people to, who, who care about high-quality content to, to embrace it. Look, I think the thing for me, and I totally agree with you, and I think the thing for me is that with Epic and uh, with the tools that we've got from people like the Foundry, um, the limit isn't production, it isn't post-production. The limit is distribution. And, I mean, there are a lot of really good films, as you know, like a Sundance, you'll go to Sundance, there'll be a lot, like hundreds of really good films, of which only a limited number are ever going to find any kind of theatrical release because of the structure of the um, theatrical release system. And... Yeah, distribution is yet to have that kind of shake-up that we've seen in post and we've seen in, in production. But I guess I'm speaking to the converted here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we could get, if we could get obviously, if we could get 4K, just, you know, high-quality, high-resolution displays, you know, that would be a monstrous thing. But, you know, there's a part of me, too, that could just say, just give me a, a 4K projector, you know, even a short-throw. If, if there was a, an affordable short-throw 4K projector... I could really see a lot of sort of a resurgence or potential for a lot more smaller theaters playing mm. very high quality cinematic content. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I mean, if and you, I think if you think about, sorry. The, I'm sorry, if you know the, if you think about some of the economics of the of theatrical exhibition, it's very difficult. You know, you're in these major markets and major cities where the price per square foot is is extremely expensive. And, you know, if you if it was easier to make more smaller theaters that could play a really high quality image, I think things could things could be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, And so. Moving forward, like, just tell me, what is it that, I mean, for those that don't know, I guess, uh, and I should have maybe started here, what is it that, that Off Hollywood, you know, this is, feel free to plug, what is it that <laughs> Off Hollywood is primarily focused on right now in terms of, because uh, obviously you're, you're not in business just to test cameras and talk to me on the phone. Right. Well, I mean, we, we really have two 
two sort of core components of the business, and one is the you know the the equipment rental component, and the other component is the post component. But we continue to grow sort of everything in between and around that. So we're trying to be an end to end solution with the best technologies to empower filmmakers and producers. And 3D is a, is a huge push for us. We've sort of been shooting 3D nonstop since, you know, for about a year, a little over a year, and uh, wrapping our uh, our second uh, 3D feature right now in, in Georgia. Um, and, you know, some of these technologies that are really new and require a lot of testing just fit our business model really well because, because we have the front end, because we have the camera and the equipment component we can test and we can test rapidly, and because we have the post component, we can sort of immediately see what we're doing. You know, so we sort of have a 3D team here of, of guys, and they can sort of fall on their face and make a ton of mistakes and, you know, you know, under our roof and go upstairs and sit in the theater and put the 3D glasses on and look at what they did when they turned this dial on this rig or, or what. So, um you know, we're, we're, we're ultimately looking just to continue to expand both on the, on the um, uh, camera side, camera rental side. And 3D is a big push for 2011 for sure. Um, and, you know, as fast as Red can build and sell us epics, that would be, you know, really I was really going to really say, exciting. as much as you, as, as happy as you must have been to receive an epic in the uh, FedEx box, you must be really looking forward to receiving two of them. Oh, yeah. At it's, some point. It's, it's awful because I feel like, you know, I should just feel, you know, like the luckiest man in the world and count my blessings. But of course, we're dying for a second one. But, you know, I keep a good dialogue with, with the other early adopters. So I'm sure. Um, you know, if it takes longer for Red to get me, uh, you know, off Hollywood's second epic, I'll be hopping on a plane and, you know, rendezvousing, <laughs> rendezvousing with you probably. So, <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I, we're we're equally uh, as keen to mount a second epic because I've got to say the the adoption of epic as we've seen in the take up in feature films, it feels to me the uh, accelerated take up because let's face it the number of major features shooting Epic is much quicker than the number of major sh- features that were shooting Red One. Well, yeah, um, they, they haven't even announced other ones, so... Yeah, I, I but just, I mean, the, even, it's the go-to camera, it seems, right now for major stereo productions. Yep. And uh, that's got to be hugely influenced by the um, the uh, the size of the cameras. Yeah. But just, before I move off, just before I move off Hollywood, I just for those that don't know... Um, just do you want to discuss because obviously there are a number of really big features and really great films like Fair Game that you guys have worked on. Yep. Just want to just maybe quickly just give me the two seconds of some of the productions you guys have helped with. Um, well, I, we did Fair Game with Doug Lyman, which was uh, in competition at Cannes and just had a theatrical run. We provided all of the cameras and on-set support and all the post-production for Rabbit Hole, which is Nicole Kidman's movie. Um, that just opened, I think. Um, and I think... Yeah, this, very very powerful film. Yeah, a lot, lot of Oscar buzz um, around that for her. Um, and we just wrapped um, Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan's first Red MX feature, um, a movie called Darling Companion that was shot in Utah. Uh, and, and what a great director and, and writer he is. Yeah, so we're really, really excited. We were, we were trying to do some publicity and they wouldn't let us, you know print any pictures of him working on the set with the red, but they had a fantastic time. He's absolutely thrilled 
with the images. Um, so there's a lot of excitement around that project. Um, we have a film that's shooting right now um, that is called um, um, Burning Blue, um, right. which is uh, based on a very famous play that ran forever in, in London. It's being um, directed by the director and writer of that play. Um, and then we've got, you know, we've got a lot of projects. We're anxious for Doug Lyman's next film, which sounds like it's going to be a, a pretty big studio film called All You Need Is Kill. Um, and I asked uh, his producer, I said, is it 2D or 3D? And the response was, we don't know yet, but we know it's going to be on Epic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but yeah, we, we usually have, you know, we usually have at least two feature films that we're supporting on the camera side that are shooting at the same time. Um, and then usually, you know, at least a feature in post at the same time. So just in finishing up, um, on the Epic, just as a first initial impression, again, I'm not going to uh, get into too much detail on the Epic because it really I think it's only fair to talk to you after you've had it for longer. But if you uh, were somebody that had a red one and most of the kit that one tends to gather over a year or two of, of working with an MX... Um, do you feel like, uh, just as a user, that you're thinking, hmm, yeah, I'm going to probably replace all this now with Epic-specific kit, or do you expect to translate a bunch of stuff? And I know that there's a marketing answer to that that Red might give me about, yes, everything's applicable, but does it feel to, to, to you like you're going to just end up buying a bunch of new stuff and um, not using much out of your MX kit, or just leave that alone? Or Well, I think it really depends on what you say when you say kit. I mean... You know, we, we've tested the 7-inch LCD from our Red One with the Epic. It looks great. But, of course, we've already fallen in love with the touchscreen. Um, we have a couple of bomb EVFs. We don't – we haven't – we're backordered on some bomb EVFs for some of our other Red One cameras. Um, but that's something that obviously you would use the bomb EVF between the Red One MX and, and between the Epic. Um, you know, support gear all remains the same, you know. Uh, tripod sticks lenses are the same lens motors are the same controls are the same map boxes are the same so i mean a lot of it's the same i mean i think you know base plate riser stuff is is gonna you're gonna want different you're gonna want different sort of immediate ac accessories the stuff that's sort of right up on that camera because it's so small and different but i think you know um a lot of the stuff that we've invested a lot of money in here is all going to play the same. You know, on the high-end shows, it's going to be a Cinetape and a Preston and a 2575. You know, it's all the same stuff. Um, I just think that you could potentially have some smaller stuff, you know, um, that'll help you get the overall size of your rig smaller. That makes sense? And yeah, absolutely. And do you feel we're going to end up with working epics that are just less of a rat's nest of wires and cables? Because, I mean, I love my MX to death, but like we're on set with a bunch of MXs and there are just, you know, it's hard to see the MX for the cables and the wires and the stuff. Does oh, it feel yeah. like we, we, we we're going to end up with a smaller package? <laughs> yes. And I can tell you uh, in, in the 3D world, 100%. Um, I know that uh, I saw... Uh, a prototype of ET's project um, making a very specific, epic-specific rig. That's um, the Atom, isn't yeah, it? Right? Yes. And, and one of the major goals with that is, like, it's virtually no wires at all because it'll just, it's just going to plug into, you know, the rig itself. 
Um, and I know, you know, we shoot 3D on red MXs and it, it's we're embarrassed to publish the pictures because it, it's just a rat's nest of, of cables. <laughs> and we try. We try hard to get it, but it never works. There's just a lot of stuff. But I do think, um, you know, again, we're just scratching the surface. But, I mean, there, there's a lot more options in this camera and it does a lot of other stuff that you, it, you can't do on the red MX. So I, I and think, you, you're feeling good about moving away from drives and CF cards? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, you know, we, we got um, uh, some 128 SSDs, and we actually got a couple modules. Um, we ordered a bunch, and uh, I guess there was an initial order that they're breaking up or something, but we only got a couple of initial modules for the Red 1MXs, so we're currently testing those. But, you know, it's the same SSD that you use for the Red 1 with the new module and for the Epic. And um, Which I mean, for a rental company is just worth its weight in gold. Yeah, it's worth its weight in gold, and it's 128 gigs, at least the, you know, the ones that we got. I know there's a 64-gig flavor and a 256 flavor, but 128 just sounded to me to be right because you know, on the Red in 4K, on the Red MX, it's probably like an hour or four, you know, 40 minutes plus. Um, I, you know, I don't like people to shoot so much footage because – you know, you want to be managing that media regardless, even if it's solid state. Um, but I know that, on, you know, on the Epic, you can shoot it, you know, um, lower compression ratios. And HDRX is, you know, double the data rate. So I thought 128 was sort of feels to me like the sweet spot. I don't know. Check in with me in, in a month and maybe I'll be ready for the 256s. But, um, you know, they're, <laughs> they're metal. You know, they're rugged. They're small. They just slot right. You know, it just... It just feels so much better than a compact flash card and obviously much more manageable than a drive. Well, look, congratulations on, well, firstly, just the company. Since 2003, you guys have just grown into this uh, sort of uh, tight powerhouse. So congratulations on that. I'm I'm not even slightly jealous of the fact that you have an Epic and I don't, but I'll get over (laughs) that. Um, also, um, as I say, keep in touch with us over how you're finding uh, the uh, Foundry stuff with Storm because I, I must admit I'm very keen because you've got such a strong production and post-production. Yep. I think that's the sweet spot, quite frankly, moving forward. Yep. For so many companies, uh, you want somebody to be what I call the responsible adult that helps out with your production. Yep. And I think you need to know both of those things. And you guys are really you know, the sort of poster child of, of sensible Shooting and post combined. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I think the Foundry Storm will go well on that, and, and we'd love to hear how it goes as it uh, moves forward with you guys. But thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Yep, yep, my pleasure. And let's talk again soon. Let's talk in January. Appreciate it. Happy holidays, Mike. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you, Mark. Well done. And just uh, to clarify, incredible. we recorded that right before he went out to shoot the lunar eclipse. Lunar eclipse, just right. Trying to place the timeline as to his experience with the camera. Yeah. So very, very quick, very recent. And thank. Obviously, I know that uh, Mark's probably been completely um, peppered with uh, bullet hole requests. People are dying to speak to him about it. So I and really look, um, appreciate him taking the time. Yeah, and we might catch up with him again in the new year um, because it, I didn't want to get into like this review of the camera because he hasn't had a chance to kind of fully yeah you know plus yeah anyway so uh yeah so in the new year we might uh, have a more in-depth thing when he's had a chance to test stuff because at the moment as, as you heard in that some of his comments he just like well you know subjectively looking at it the 
it looks really, really clean and really, really low noise, but he hasn't had a chance to put them side by side with you. Everything, everything we makes. knew. Yeah, I think obviously the, the, keen, the thing I'm keen to talk to him about, uh, or, or um, you know, as, as the dust settles, would be the. Um, you know, the size of the sensor and crop factor and why the difference between why lenses. Why you see if you can talk to him next time? I you'll, will. You'll have a much more cinematic discussion than my geek out. Okay. All hey, right. Um, Speaking of continuing geek out, mm. um, Frank, jo- Frank Yonan. Uh, who's a really good friend of a PhD and FX guide, has done us a huge favour because we were talking about having difficulty getting the D7000 here in Sydney. And uh, he said, jumped in and said, well, I can do the testing for you here in Germany. So he did some testing. Now, we can't put all of this up because it's a huge amount of files, but um, we'll put up some selected bits from it. But basically, uh, those of you might be familiar with your test, Jason, you did with the uh, 5D and the, do you want to just... the 5D and the F3. Yeah, yeah I did uh, basically bolted the two cameras together and did some you know, classic just rapid pans to see how the verticals were skewing. But also what I had done was was looking at not just, you know, poles or, or lines on a wall, but literally looking at a full wall of semen stars and focus charts and also looked over at a very fine mesh um, fly screen. Uh, so I had a really good chance to compare the, FD, the F3 and the 5D together. So it was really interesting to see the Moiré effect as well, obviously. The 5D having, uh, you know, throwing away 22 megapixels and turning it into... 1080p uh there's an awful lot of artifacting as we know with with moray effect and it was just in, incredibly um cl- crystal clear the difference between uh, say the sony f3 and the 5d um but obviously one of the main things we've talked about before has been rolling shutter with the d7000 and with with previous Please, previous yeah. Nik- nikon products particularly the d90 um Ugly. yeah really 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 bad um so it was good to compare the two. Now, having looked at uh, his similar uh, Frank's similar tests, uh, just rolling shutter, um, looking at not just um, rolling shutter, but also looking at any time you look at those focus stars and, and semen stars and, and focus charts, you get a really good I- idea of the resolution and how well uh, things handle with sort of fine detail and moiré patterns. And I've got to say, on both counts, I think the, the D7000 is doing really, really well. Almost, it's definitely better than 5D, I think, in terms of rolling shutter. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think um, it's brought Nikon up to speed and then some uh, and put them in the game. I think this is something they maybe should have done a year ago. Mm. Uh, but definitely, if I was a Nikon user right now, I'd feel pretty comfortable in moving forward with my Nikon glass on a Nikon camera back. Yeah, I mean, what I was hang- holding off for before I moved to 5D and it just didn't come was a um, the full frame um, full-frame camera with, with video, The um, looking for a, um, uh, a a newer model, I think, of the D700. I'm trying to think of what the D... Uh, yeah, their full-frame uh, full camera. And it never came, so I jumped ship and went to uh, 5D. But I did have a ton of Nikon glass I had to get rid of. But, so uh, the Nikon D7000 is about $1,500, right? I mean, that's sort of street price I think you'd pay for that. Um, at Amazon or whatever, and if you had Nikon glass right now, the glass any one lens would probably cost that. I think it's about uh, 1,400 euros. But anyway, it's around that price. But you know, these things are variable depending on which you know store you go into mm. and on which on what day. But they it's been out what since September theoretically, or sort of. It's theoretically, but it's still almost impossible. Impossible to get hold of. Yeah, yeah impossible to get your hands on. Um, so. 
you know, it's got a 12.2 megapixel CMOS sensor. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, which is more than enough. I think also they're listening in that department because people have been uh, asking people to just stop the pixel, megapixel race and let's start looking at um, making these chips a bit more sensitive. You know, let's have uh, less pixel pitch and, and uh, give each pixel a chance to gather a bit more light rather than well, racing. Of course, that's the thing that Nikon has, the low light sensitivity, because this is basically 100 to 6400 ISO, though it's actually extendable, I'm not quite sure how, uh, I haven't played with it up to 25,000 right. um, or 25,600. I, I think that's sort of categorized as kind of like usable and, and usable. Pushable. And pushable. <laughs> yeah, pushable, well, yeah, if it's bearable. The, if it's the, guy, <laughs> the lone gunman on the hill, you don't care. But, um, but I've actually I've heard rumors that people have actually been picking up the camera bodies for as low as like 1,200. Um, but if that's the case, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, um, with some, you know, those sort of cashback discounty things that you get. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty pretty serious uh, contender. I mean, it's Nikon. You know, just is a good camera company. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. There's plenty of plenty of pros out there who are incredibly happy with it, and it's obviously a lot of people have got a lot of glass invested. That's the main thing, um, and it'd be good for them. You know, I think it's it's if nothing else, it signals the fact that they are you know listening and, and changing. Like a lot of people, they're sort of getting on board with this. Uh, again, this is still a DSLR. It's still going to have all the pain and, and, and stuff associated, maybe, with um, that I topped the whole show off with at the beginning with the whole, you know, HDMI and all that sort of stuff. It, well, look, these are still stills cameras and, you know, dragging them. We are dragging them, kicking and screaming in, into into the film world. Well, I spoke to Frank in Germany uh, on the phone earlier today, so let's just cross to that now. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. So you've been uh, playing with the D7000 um, and given us some video clips. Now, we're obviously very keen to look at this because we're hoping that the D7000 will get Nikon in the game as far as recording video. What was your um, first impression? Um, my first impression was um, video quality. Um, I think they're shorting out on the quality a little bit. Probably um, because of the bad um, bad experience they had last time, because because of the processing speed and what to do with the video. I think yep. it's less than what it could be, given on the uh, raw processing qualities that you get. Um, let's say when you're shooting, you can get up to seven, I think, uh, in sequence when you're shooting raw. In reality, it's yep. much closer to four when you're shooting longer <laughs> sequences. But uh, when you look at the mass of data that you need to pro uh, that you need uh, to handle when you're doing raw, and the uh, comp uh, comparative uh, little mass that you need to handle when you're doing these H two six four sequences, I think they're being on the cautious side a bit. Uh, that said, it looks reasonably good uh, for uh, what it's doing. I mean, I guess the thing is, how would you, I mean, say it would comparing to something done similarly on a 5D? Because I, I think, obviously, there is, that's the sort of number one competition for it, really, a Canon camera um, at this price level, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, when I looked at your, uh, what, what you shot on the 5D and uh, what I shot on the basic settings uh, at that time, um, 
it's a little bit better on the seven D seven thousand is a little bit better than the five D on the um uh aliasing front and on the um uh the rolling shot stuff. Shot? Yeah. yeah. So looking at the test charts that you've uh, shot and we'll we'll post links to download these, there there is still that more pattern you're getting uh on the resolution charts. But as you say, on the uh, panning stuff where you've obviously done some fast and slow pans past um, uh, test charts and stuff, it does seem to have a little less rolling shutter problem than we've seen, um, I would say noticeably less rolling shutter than the 5D to my eye. Um, and I think the other thing that's interesting is you did a test where you actually put the camera on its end, an unusual video test because obviously most people shoot um, 16 by 9 but you effectively did 9 by 16 to just check whether that was happening vertically. Did yeah, you see any surprises there? The the vertical stuff is because that's uh, what I'm doing a lot right now. Right. So um, that's uh, that was my uh, primary te- uh, primary reason uh, for that. Um, like uh, with the iPad, you have uh, um, like the stuff that uh, the orientation that people most use on the iPad is the uh, vertical one. So when you prepare a video for that, that was my reason for that. All right. Well, that's interesting. So you're still seeing the Moray pattern. You're still seeing pretty much the same artifacts, obviously, when you turn it vertically um, because it's essentially the same picture. But when you start getting into the rolling shutter... That looks um, pretty you're weird, getting yeah. A, yeah, you're getting a compression rolling shutter from a 16 by 9 um, point of view. Though, of course, it translates to being a sort of a similar kind of effect because the... The principle is the same. It's just like a left to right. Um, the scan is dropping down, so uh, it slightly does your head in to kind of work out how it's working. But it does this sort of uh, spongy kind of compression, I guess is the way to describe it. Yeah, when you um, have it in portrait mode, you definitely don't want to move the camera that much. Yeah. So I guess uh, the D7000, where does that sit as far as Nikon goes? Is it considered to be the the Rolls-Royce of the Nikon line? I don't think so. It's, it's much yeah, more right. of a sort of a medium-level camera, right? It's uh, the direct successor to the D, uh, D90. Right. And in terms of Nikon's own pipeline, this is a huge improvement from what we've seen before from them because the previous stuff was, I think, un- unusable. Oh, totally. Um, as I uh, told you earlier, the uh, shot that I made, the test shot, where I made uh, lit by a, just a standard tube light that you have in pretty much uh, any household, just uh, not any super quality thing, it's just floor light. And the issues that I had with that light uh, on the D90 is this um, uh, out-of-sync rolling flickering that you couldn't get rid of. That either right. you had it, it was kind of a shot in the dark. Either you had it, or you had it less. But it was never away totally. With the uh, D seven thousand, that is gone. Well, even on just like I shot a rice field in Japan with that uh, earlier Nikon, and it just seemed to compress poorly. It you know there was the wind kind of rustling through the uh, long rice. You know how that you get that shot where it sort of looks like you can almost see the wind passing over the tops of the heads of the rice. And it just sort of broke up and it just was unworkable. And I, I pretty much at that shot, I panned around to that field and I was like, okay, well, that's just not working for me at all. It was um, steppy and poppy. Now, that's a very different shot to the one you've got. But yeah, in some respects, it's the same because there was a lot of high-frequency uh, detail on it. And, of course, in your test charts, um, we see a lot of high-frequency detail as well as some 
some other sort of non-orthogonal uh, shapes and, and things. And I think that um, even uh, the accident, I guess, of having shot this against a wooden kind of wall or door is good because you get to see what it's doing with the wood grain. And one of the things that I found with the cannon is it can rob for the high contrast areas. So the wood grain would suffer tremendously because it's devoting its sort of processing power, as it were, to the high con stuff, which in this case would be your black and white charts. And anything that's tonally uh, changing, but in a sort of a relatively modest uh, tonal band is where the compression kicks really, really hard. Did you see any sort of thing, artifacts or stuff showing up in the actual wood panelling itself around the edge of the charts that, that you sort of noticed? Uh, around the edge, yeah. Um, a little bit like a contrast snapping, like you have when you're doing a um, high-pass, low-pass filtering. Mm-hmm. You get a bit of that on the lines uh, that's uh, going down straight the edge of the paper, yeah. where, the, where the paper meets uh, its, its shadow. To the uh, to the door, right. So um, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what what exactly they're, they're doing with the processing. I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, if they're taking like every third and diagonal like uh, calendars, or w- what exactly they're doing. It could be that it's uh, like a nearest neighbor thing uh, with uh, downscaling, but then we would have uh, more artifacts. I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, we, we're absolutely not getting a raw picture. We're getting a heavily processed picture. Um, and so these files uh, we're going to be posting on the site, of course, are going to be uh, movies. They're going to be quick times. What is it that's actually just coming out of the D7000? When, when you put it into your laptop to transfer the files, are you getting out a uh, uh, H.264 or an MPEG, or what are you getting? Yeah, you're getting pretty much... This, uh uh, what, what I gave you is uh, pretty much exactly what's coming out of the camera. I just removed the audio file because that was bunk. Yep. So it's uh, so what, what you're getting is an H.264. But yep. uh, one thing to, no- to note uh, really with that H.264, um, that H.264 is not licensed for professional use. It's licensed for uh, like uh, playing around, taking around, non-commercial use. So when you want to uh, make, make a film with it that you're planning to sell, all you need to uh, basically do is recompress it. Because, right. uh, because uh, QuickTime or like anything that Apple gives you, gives you the, uh, kind of gives you the com- uh, commercial use right. Right. So you basically got the rights to use it, but if you were a major media organization, you'd just do an extra step. Yeah, you just uh, stay to the letter of the license, which means yeah. what comes out of the camera is non-commercial use. Okay. Well, I don't know whether everyone will stick to that, but it's good to know where you stand on that. So <laughs> thanks for that. So I guess my bottom line is, if you do you have a lot of Nikon glass? I mean, are you where are you at with uh, Nikon? Are you uh, using Nikon or, or sort of a diehard user? Um, I'm not a diehard anything actually. Um, <laughs> well, uh, for the Nikon cameras, I, I don't have too many owned lenses. I just rent what I need. I have right. a 35DX, um, which isn't that much DX. It actually co- comes closer to a 50. And I have to, I have a 50FX. That's my so- go-to stuff that I just have lying around. So if someone was coming up to you and saying, look, I want to get a camera because I want to film some um, stuff uh, semi-professionally, like, you know, 
um, either short films or videos or stuff that you might be even corporates. Uh, would you favor heavily recommending Canon over Nikon or Nikon over Canon after having a look at this test? What would you, where would you be? Uh, depends on their skills in post-production, I would say. Because with the Canon, you get the benefit of the higher bitrate, which means it immediately looks a li- little bit cleaner. But uh, to my eye, the uh, Canon has a bit of a video look. And while the D7000 has also a bit of a video look, it's a little bit less VHS-y than, the, than uh, what I've seen with the uh, 5D so far. I would de- definitely uh, put the uh, D7000 in the uh, semi-pro class. And, and I say that because um, one, when, when Nikon puts it, with a limited bitrate, and the being the direct successor of the uh, D90, which is also a consumer cam. And I think it's it's a fair bet that when they roll out their pro cams, uh, they won't do it like Canon, but actually give you uh, better video quality. And because just saying that because the uh, D3 just has a, a vastly better CPU than uh, the D7000. Right. All right, well, thank you so much, Frank, for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, with pleasure. Thanks, Frank. That was terrific. Thank you again for taking the time and getting back to us. There's, um, there's one thing we didn't put in there that um, Frank and I were discussing, which is basically the audio. The audio is far from good. I mean, it's good mm. enough for, like, syncing with... It's not like Nikon solved audio, you know? Um, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've recorded a lot of stuff where you've done. When you do your interviews, you put the mic straight into the no, 5D. I do not. I do oh, you record onto the test cam, right? Gotcha. A I've test done cam some that was recommended to me by a friend on a podcast. It's a very, very incredibly intelligent and handsome friend. It is too. <laughs> they um, the, the, the audio in the 5D is not awful. Yeah, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the A to D conversion isn't great. The the uh, monitoring is appalling. The ability to plug headphones in so that you yeah, can just sit that, there and that monitor is it. The main That's really useful, yeah. that is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to check the levels and set manual levels. Yeah. Uh, uh, does this have manual audio levels? I don't know. Actually. Uh, I think this has audio comparable with the 7D, not the 5D. Yeah, in which case, no manual recording levels but, you know, still. But I mean, you need a knob. I mean, the thing about the test cam is you need a knob at the side. Sound, like the, the sound guy. What? I, don't, I, I look. I think sound guys are great. Whenever we turn up to film things, they mm. make sure we can hear them. But they make sure we don't we don't we finish don't. on time. Anyways, <laughs> sound guys, freaking sound guys are all women. <laughs> on not, set, they just I don't know. Consistently, do not have on set. It's like they live in some kind of underground cave and get pulled out of film shoots. You know, like there's some sort of hostage situation. They're in, you know, in a basement with a hood on, and then they get pulled out into blinding light. And quick, go on set. And oh, where do I stand? And oh, 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 constantly they put their shit in front of, in right in the middle of the frame. Anyway, let's not get started. I think you already started. <laughs> so when did you first start having this problem with soundies? Oh, I don't know. Probably when they were first. Invented, I think. No, some are great, but, you know, a lot of the time they are just really, really good at getting in the way and slowing up and you're about to shoot and, oh, I need to replace the battery on the wireless mic. Or the mic's in shot or it's consistently shot or it starts off out of shot and then it droops into shot. 
Um, yeah, or they have the battery on the recorder. The sound guys, I think, have 10 times more batteries than anybody else because just consistently every three takes, something is going to run out of batteries. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It would be if we went back to silent movies. I think you know the films would get shot. You know everything would get shot. Everything would get shot that much quicker. Really, he said while speaking on an audio podcast. Just go back to mime or something. I don't know. Just go back to freaking silent movies. Ah, oh, dear. No, sorry, I'm a bit. So, so your idea I'm, of a good time is to go to a party and meet a sound who's standing there with an HDMI cable saying, "Look what I just bought from Best Buy." From, no, from uh, Monster. Monster cable. <sighs> Sorry, everybody. Okay. Normal service will be resumed next year sometime. Anyway, I'm tired. Um, so we should actually do, just to get out of here, we probably should do, uh, well, I, I was temp- I was toying with, should we do some kind of, what are our predictions for 2000? <laughs> 2011 kind of a show oh, what was our best best bits from 2010 but um, I think 2000 I'm hoping that um, 2011 we can say that Epic and Scarlet are shipping and all done and we can stop talking about coming soon after having spent nearly three years doing that be terrific um, I think we're going to see a ton more 4k plenty of static about uh, say Sony doing 4k uh, lots of other companies are rushing to that or um and obviously going to have the same amount level of pain and delays um you're just staring blank me, blankly what i at me, was Mike. looking forward to is we're going to be going to nab this year and yes. it looks like we'll be um coerced into doing the uh, post pit again which mm. at uh, the nab right i was going to ask about and that. i'm hoping that you're going to do it with me um and I'd like to have an Epic there, and I'd like to have shot a bunch of stuff with Epic yes. and be able to share that with people. Yes. This is subject to the NAB actually providing a good projector, because if you went to our lectures last year, it was uh, black. Not our fault, uh, yep. but we, we basically put our foot down and up. said, unless they fix the projection, we're not going to talk. Yep. But um, yeah, and I think that would be really exciting. Um, Definitely. And I think that'll cause an explosion in stereo, because it's an enabler. And yeah, I, think I mean, if there the, wasn't enough of explosion last time at uh, NAB. And I think the other thing is... Uh, the HDRX stuff, I cannot see that not going over to stills cameras. There's yeah. no way Nikon and Canon are going to put up with somebody else having the drop on them on yeah. a dynamic range like that. Yeah. They're going to start work. I mean, that is the next. We've sort of worked out the fact that we're not going to do this pixel, uh, megapixel race. Um, video is getting better and better. So, yeah, that probably is the next thing. That's, you know, I mean, an iPhone will do it or in some form does, you know, HDR kind of mode on an iPhone. That's actually quite helpful. But obviously that's sort of doing real weird sort of workarounds. But, yeah, absolutely, that is that is probably going to be the next trick. Dynamic range. Also in January, we're doing some really huge things over at FX Guide, including giving away very expensive things um, oh, yeah. and, yeah, doing all sorts of interesting things. Over, and it's in January, so just all bets are off. We were going to do something right now, but we decided it was right before Christmas. We'd delay until January. Okay. So people need to, how do they find out more about that then? Uh, well, they would listen to this podcast. They would go to FX Guide, especially right. in the new year, and uh, follow you on Twitter as... Wingrove. While we're on the subject of Twitter, uh, Frank Jonan, who did the fantastic uh, D7000 tests, he is on Twitter also, uh, F-R-A-N-K-J-O-N-E-N. Um, a great follow. Uh, I've been following him for a long time. And again, thanks to Frank for uh, keeping in touch and sending us those tests. And follow me on Twitter as Mike Seymour, though I must admit... Well, I love you guys follow me as Mike Seymour. That's terrific. 
Um, the best place to see everything that's happening with us is at FX Guide and, of course, over at FX PhD. FX PhD is now shut for the year in terms of new membership. It'll be opening up with new courses starting in January, and uh, we'll be running through those uh, then. And that's where all the uh, workflow stuff was, I've been talking about will be happening uh, starting in the beginning of January. Yeah, well, we hey. should obviously do a show close to that time as well, so you can tell what this magical thing you're going to be giving away and also um, talk about the courses. Big and shiny. Big and um, shiny. Excellent. You're giving away the epics on the way. You're giving away the red one. Jason, I want to thank you personally for all the work you've done this year and for um, everything to do with Red Centre because I think you've been absolutely brilliant. And, uh, and honestly, I know that you have a million other things you could be doing rather than traipsing in here to the uh, tech penthouse to, um, Never. to record. No, no, that's <laughs> true. You're, you're very generous with your time. So I want to say thank you. No, thank you. It's been fantastic. And it's been... Um, Nicest uh, director working in Australia right now. <laughs> On not on film, it's no. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Um, let, let's keep it going. It's been amazing. I didn't quite think we'd have quite the longevity uh, that w- that we did. To be honest, I thought once Ep- Epic and Scarlet actually we have Red to thank <laughs> for giving us something to talk about all this time. But um, no, I appreciate it. It's been great. It is nothing. It is a completely pointless and complete waste of time without um, you guys listening. It's been terrific to get the feedback. People, uh, you know, giving us ideas for stories, uh, just nice comments, following us on Twitter, retweeting stuff. It's been really terrific. Thank you. It's made it all worthwhile. Otherwise, it's absolutely apart from coming here to see you, Mike. It's been it would have been completely pointless waste of time. It's uh, obviously, as you know, we don't. You know, no one gets paid to do this. This is um, we do this for fun. Um, it's uh, very, um, but it's very worthwhile. And thanks to our new sponsors, the Foundry, who have uh, helping us do stuff and uh, helping us get to NAB. And uh, we'll see you guys in the new year. Uh, thanks again, Jace. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, see you. See ya. This Red Center podcast was brought to you by Storm, a brand new Red Digital Cinema production hub from the Foundry. To find out more, check out thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for more details. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010 FX Guide, LLC.